around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to design, build and operate the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment, leveraging digital twin technology to help solve the most complex of engineering challenges, our solutions include integrated applications and services built on an open platform, enabling digital workflows across engineering disciplines and distributed project teams from the office to the field. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Engineers Collective. My name is Claire Smith and I'm editor of New Civil Engineer and your host for today's episode where we're going to be doing a deep dive, metaphorically and physically, on a major civil engineering project that's just been completed in London. That project is Transport for London's £655 million bank station capacity upgrade project. And if you've travelled through that station on the London Underground, you'll understand why the work was needed. And if you haven't, don't worry, you're going to learn all about it as today we're going to be taking everyone on a journey through the history of the project and talk about why it was a bit different from previous projects and why that was also key to the success of the work too. So joining me on that journey, we have three guests today who were all involved in the project, some at the early stages and some during the latter stages. But between us, we're going to take you about 40 metres underground in this episode. My guests today are University College London Associate Professor of Project Management, Simon Adiman. Dragados Operations Director Stephen Holmes and HS2 Euston Station Project Director Andy Swift. And from those job titles, you might wonder why I'm talking about Bank Station to these three, but they have lived and breathed the project before moving on to other roles in the sector. Simon even used the work for his PhD, which led him to his current role. But before that, he was Transport for London's Programme and Project Manager on the Bank Station project, after a long career working on London underground schemes. He has 30 years of experience in construction, both in the UK and overseas. Before joining London Underground, he worked on development and humanitarian relief work in West Africa with the World Bank and in the Balkans with the United Nations. Andy was Transport for London's delivery manager on bank, the bank project from 2012 to 2016, where he led the tender evaluation, design and pre-construction and took over from Simon as programme manager, leading the construction and delivery phase of the project. Andy is a civil engineer with more than 32 years experience in the delivery of high profile complex projects in the UK, such as High Speed 1 and the Jubilee Line extension, and he's now working on High Speed 2. Stephen is a civil engineer and followed a traditional career path, predominantly in the rail sector, to become operations director for Morgan Sindel in 2006. After running the airports division for five years, he moved to Dragados in 2014, he worked on Crossrail before moving on to the Bank Station project. So welcome to the Engineers Collective to all three of you. So now just to set the scene for those who haven't travelled through Bank Station before, it's one of the busiest interchanges on the tube network, which connects the Northern Line, the Central Line, District and Circle Lines, Waterloo and City Line, and is the terminus for Docklands Line Railway. The number of people using the station a day was at 337,000 when work on the upgrade was set to begin in 2014. And a YouGov poll in 2013 saw it named as the most disliked station on the London Underground Network due to the overcrowding and navigational issues. But that's all in the past, so let's talk about what you did, how you did it, 
um, before we delve into how, can you explain what the project has delivered? If people go to Bank Station today, what do they see? What are the benefits of what you've delivered? Steve, you were there right at the end. Why don't, why don't we, you tell us what we ended up with? So um, the openings that we um, did during 2022 and 23 allow uh, a much more efficient interchange between the central line and the northern line. You've got a new ticket hall uh, off Cannon Street that gives easy access to the Northern Line concourse area. And then on top of that, you've got step-free access down to the Northern Line as well. So from a fire evacuation point of view, a wayfinding perspective and emergency escapes, they're, they're, they're all dramatically improved. So it's very much a modern station. Very much. Can I, can I just add to that? So I think in summary, we built a new southbound platform tunnel uh, alongside the existing station, uh, connecting running tunnels, as Steve said, new ticket hall, um, 12 new escalators were installed, so various escalator barrels, a 120 metre long travelator tunnel that went underneath Mansion House to connect into the central line. Um, we also put in step-free access, as Steve said, down to the DLR and the northern line. That station didn't have step-free access to the northern line uh, at all. And then obviously we converted the existing southbound platform tunnel into a new concourse, so circulation space. Um, and all of that overall increased the size of the station by about 40%. So it's a really major project, but when did conversations about the need for the project start and, and what were the challenges you faced at that point? So I guess that was it 2013, 2012, around that time? Or was it earlier? Simon? Yeah, much earlier. Much earlier. I mean, the project, uh, the project at its very early inception commenced in around 2003. Uh, so at this time, London Underground were uh, post privatisation. They were evaluating the capacity of the, the major central stations, uh, which ultimately ended up into a programme of work of multiple station uh, enhancements including King's Cross, Victoria, Tottenham Court Road, Bond Street etc of which Bank then was then one of the uh, latter one of those. So in kind of in parallel with those earlier projects that I mentioned Bank was uh, developed slowly as you say it was a very complex interchange. Uh, We had collected a lot of very good data on passenger movement in and out and through the station Um, and Predominantly, we didn't really have an access or egress problem because there are quite a lot of entrances into the station. The the main problem was the interchange. Uh, That was the real uh, crux of the problem. And uh, the the congestion in in, in Russia fundamentally meant we had to start closing uh, or or it would lead to uh, stopping entrance into the station to allow people to offload, because if we didn't do that, we would then have to hold trains either side at Moorgate and London Bridge. So, so that was the, the problem that was quite, quite well identified and very well measured. Because it was a very complex station, it took a long time to develop uh, a scheme that could, could resolve that problem. So it wasn't until late 2011 when, uh, when I joined the project when they were just arriving at the end of uh, the end of concept design and the fundamental problem that they had was that the scheme they could come up with while it was uh, acceptable to the business it had a reasonable business cost ratio above the 1.1 to 5 1.5 uh, to 1 that the uh, that the DFT seek 
Um, it was way over budget, it was way over time, and it was operationally inefficient further down the line in the business case. Uh, kind of 20, 20 odd years into the 60-year uh, business case, it then started to become overcrowded again. Um, so that was the real trigger point to say to us, yes, we have a, an approved base case, um, but really if we start, if we take this uh, concept design to market, um, we, we're going to end up with a scheme that we really can't afford and, uh, and is suboptimal. Go on, Andy, have you got something to add in on that? Yeah, I, I, just to add to that. So one of the problems, just building on Simon's point, was the con- the control measures that Simon spoke about. So that's when the station have to implement um, passenger control measures to stop the station from overcrowding and stopping the northern line. Um, they were going up exponentially. So they were doing more and more of these control measures were being um, implemented in the station. Um, and I think, I can't remember Simon exactly, but I think they went from like four or five a year to sort of four or five a week as the growth had, had continued. And and that was a real problem. And what it was doing was it was actually affecting getting people into the city and um, contributing to GDP. So bank, believe it or not, actually contributes to the, to the UK GDP because it allows more people to come into the city and all of those services sectors um, that the UK relies on. So, you know, it was a it was a project of national importance as well. And that was one of the, the big reasons why we pushed ahead with it um, was because of that contribution to GDP. And we know that Canary Wharf as the financial sort of district was, was becoming more popular, but that's because they've got great transport links to Canary Wharf that the city, you know, just didn't have. So that whole capacity upgrade of bank was really important from a national level as well. And a lot of people think, oh, it's just a tube upgrade, but actually it's not. It's, it contributes to the wider UK economy. And that was a, that was one of our key points when we went through our consenting was actually how it contributes to, to more of the national stage than just a local, um, area in London, for example. And, you know, as Simon says, it's that, people interchanging through the station was where it was causing a lot of the congestion uh, and that was something that we we had to go and fix. So it's very much a project that's needed but obviously there were challenges around delivery but the you needed to do something different but the procurement is where the difference on this project compared to others delivered by Transport for London lies really isn't it and even different to perhaps what other infrastructure clients have done. Um, can you outline some of those differences and what they were and, and how that helped the project succeed? Yeah, thanks, Claire. That that really was the key turning point. Um, when, when I joined the project, uh, we had then already tendered and were executing Victoria, Bond Street, Tottenham Court Road. And what we had fundamentally found was that we were losing value through adopting quite a traditional procurement route. So we had, uh, we had adopted design and build, um, which we have found to be very productive and, and a good, uh, a good uh, procurement route to go down. Um, but we had done that in quite a traditional competitive manner. So we, ha- we as a client had developed a scheme design. We'd fixed that scheme design. We'd put that into a, into a tender document. Uh, we internally would have set those terms and conditions generally a target cost, NEC uh, form of contract, target cost, that was our chosen form of contract as a client. Um, and we would go out and we would competitively tender that. There would be you know, no op- opportunity for, for variations to that base scheme design. 
um, and and a relatively uh, well, not relatively even. It was kind of um, you know fixed in the sense that there was no dialogue that went in. Uh, went on during the procurement phase between the client and the contractor beyond the formal uh, tender queries. And it had become very apparent as we started to execute those other projects that as, as those design and build contractors came on board, they were bringing forward ideas that they could see uh, to implement to save save money and add value to the project. We were unable to implement those fundamentally because what we tended to do as a client was in parallel to the scheme design and the tender, we would go out and seek our uh, statutory planning, which for these projects was a Transport and Works Act. And once the Transport and Works Act was granted, was roughly around the same time that we would then award the contract. So when the design and build contractor brought ideas forward, uh, the cost of making that change, because the TWA had already been granted, uh, kind of the the delays and the costs of that changed outweighed the the value benefits that the uh, that the DMB contractor were bringing. So that that was the big change. That one of the big changes that we made is we 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 put a hold to the Transport and Works Act, which uh, kind of theoretically says, well, you're going to be a year and a half late if you do that, um, and we were seeking to gain two years on the uh, project. Um, we then uh, decided to, while, while we had fixed the scheme design, we didn't tender the scheme design. So we decided to tender only on a set of requirements and a very small number of requirements, which was the capacity, uh, the journey time, uh, the fire and evacuation uh, for, uh, for the station. Th- those were the kind of three primary uh, requirements that we bid on. And then what we did was we wrote a, uh, a confidentiality agreement and invited the bidders. So we pre-qualified uh, four, uh, four contractors and invited them to then come in and enter into a negotiated dialogue for innovations that they might bring forward that we've seen that we had missed on previous projects. So while they had our base scheme design as a potential offering, they had ab- the opportunity to bring forward new ideas because the initial tender document that we sent out everything was in draft the only thing that was fixed in those first days was that confidentiality agreement and then we entered into a period of about five or six months of negotiated dialogue uh, where we were very strict with ourselves around how we managed and controlled that dialogue so the innovations from individual bidders were not leaked uh, to the to the other to the other tenderers, and then at the end of that period, the bidders could register their innovations. Uh, we we evaluated those and gave them an idea of what they were. During that dialogue, we negotiated terms and conditions. We revised the evaluation criteria, uh, all in coordination with the with the four bidders, and then we reset the tender documentation and then formally issued. Uh, the tender documentation, and then pretty carried out a a fairly traditional uh, tendering process where the bidders priced, we evaluated and uh, and awarded. Andy, I don't know if you want to... uh, Andy, do you want to add uh, add on to that? Yeah, I think, you know, what we did a bit different, and 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 it runs through the whole collaborative nature of how we work together on this project, was 
we gave the bidders the opportunity to review the works information in the contract terms before we sent it out to tender. So they had an opportunity to, to input into that. Uh, and it was really important that we did that. You know, when I got involved in the project, you know, Simon tasked me particularly around looking at the works information from a contractor's point of view, having, having worked from a contracting background into a client organisation to make sure that we were being, you know, equitable in our works information, that it was fair and it was balanced, but also met our requirements as well as TfL standards and everything else. So I think giving the supply chain the opportunity to say, look, this is the contract we're thinking of going on. This is the works information that goes with it. We'd like you to review it and give us your view. So by the time the tender came out, one, they understood what was in it. They had an opportunity to input into it as well. Um, and I think that really set the foundation for how we were going to collaborate together. So we wasn't like a traditional client that said, this is our terms of contract, take it or leave it. We kind of work with the supply chain and say, look, we want something that works for all of us and that is equitable. And therefore, we want your input into that before we even get into contract with you. So by the time Dragados signed the contract, they knew exactly what was in it. They had a chance to input into it. Um, and that was really the foundation of how we then springboarded from there into the kind of design, consent and delivery of the scheme. We, we, changed, the, we changed the way we evaluated. So traditionally we would do, let's say, a quality price ratio, 70, 30, something like that. Because we were tendering on requirements only, and, and this we learned as we went through the process. So it's important to say we were, we were being heavily audited by Transport for London as we went through this process. We were rewriting TfL's procurement process as we went. Uh, and when we came to the evaluation, we went for a quality price ratio of 100 divided by zero. So that doesn't mean that, that, that we, don't, uh, we don't score the price. You're just not weighting the price. And um, the, the, of that 100%, uh, 70% of it was oriented towards the requirements. And then 30% was just oriented to the method. Because it's, it, it's that 70% that is in the long-term 60-year benefits of the business case. OK, so so really to to win, the bidders had to increase the benefits and the overall value of the scheme, not just how quick can I do it and how how cheap can I do it? Now, time and price were part of the evaluation, of course, um, but but predominantly the, the highest uh, percentage was oriented towards those requirements of capacity, journey time and fire evacuation. Stephen, I was going to come to you next to actually ask you actually what you brought to the process through this alternative procurement. So, so there's a leap of faith for everybody here, I think. And uh, from our perspective, the NDA was quite important because we were having some really, uh, uh, you know, technical discussions that were, well, we were hoping were unique to ourselves. And the last thing we wanted was to find any USPs that we've developed. Um, maybe because of our experience or some of the supply chain that we brought on board, we're able to bring to the solutions that best met the requirements that Simon mentioned. So it's quite, it's quite refreshing for us to be able to focus on something that we know is going to add value to the bid scoring. Um, but again, you don't want that to get out in the marketplace. I mean, from our point of view, it's quite an expensive way of bidding 
Um, so um, that there was a contribution towards costs during the course of this process. It by no means covered the costs, but every uh, every contribution is uh, willingly accepted. Um, but it it also gave us the opportunity to select our own supply chain, um, certainly on those key areas where we 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 needed to offer something that that added. A, a value or a benefit in accordance with the requirements and um, I think that allowed us to be able to put some intellectual property in from ourselves and from others that through a traditional process we would never have done we would never have come up with a solution that we did and I'm sure we'd have probably ended up with results similar to what other infrastructure projects do and other complications from an engineering perspective which I'm sure we'll come on to later. So can you give me a couple of examples of the solutions that you brought through through this process that you perhaps you wouldn't have done otherwise? Can I jump in there before Steve does that? Because I think there were two two, two important points uh, in the procurement that, that unfolded that perhaps we didn't understand in advance. Um, one is uh, when, when Andy and I came to kind of write the, the, the final tender document against which the contractors would price, because we were bidding on a set of requirements and we wanted to protect those innovations, in terms of all the other um, strict criteria and administration that we applied to ourselves as, as a client, sort of third party uh, um, audit of everything, is we focus much more on what we didn't want. So to avoid putting uh, having uh, innovations from the individual contractors exposed in the tender document, we wrote a lot about what we didn't want. So the requirements stayed very steady at that very high level. And then we spent a lot more time around what, writing what we didn't want, effectively opening up for the bidders to allow them to bid what they wanted to bid within those boundaries. That was a big change. The second big change was uh, really Dragados's, uh, um, uh ideas of flowing down the NDA to the, the uh, confidentiality agreement to their supply chain and saying to their supply chain, come and join us on board as the individual supplier for logistics or civils or whatever it was, demolition. And if we win, you win. And therefore that allows that lower tiers of the supply chain to be a come a part of and emotionally involved in uh, the project to put their intellectual property into that, knowing that should Dragados win, they will then get the contract uh, to come and deliver those works. So those are two big important changes. So Steve, can you give us some examples of that intellectual property that you actually brought to the project? So if you look at one of the requirements, which is to move people through the station quicker, um, we we brought innovation from the airport sector and used moving walks. I think that was a unique proposition. No other uh, bidder brought that forward, and we, we 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 sort of introduced that because of the works that we do internationally. We we're working uh, in in a lot of airports in in Spain and around the world. So by bringing our R and D team in, uh, they were able to suggest some solutions that were slightly outside of the box. So um, that, that was uh, certainly one. And then also around the, um, I, I suppose it was linked to logistics as well as the requirements. We knew that logistics was probably going to be one of the bigger challenges. It's in the centre of the city of London. 
we wanted to look to, to be that invisible contractor. So the logistics approach of closing uh, one of the minor roads uh, in the city just off uh, London Bridge uh, was our artery for materials out and materials in, and that was a key success to the project. And then that also allowed us to look at the alignment of a new running tunnel to use the existing uh, southbound running tunnel for a new concourse for pedestrian movement. So yeah, they were the key differentiators, I think, from a, from a winning uh, bid perspective. How brave did it feel to do something so different at the procurement stage? Were there times when you wondered if you'd made the right decision? Um, I don't feel that we were concerned about making the right, uh, if we'd made the right decision for a couple of reasons. One is um, the idea for doing this had originally come from the station's programme team. Miles Ashley, Ralph Freeston, Sue Barrett, who were running the other programmes. And that idea had been socialised at the London Underground Board. So we were confident as a project team that we had the support of our seniors in respect of the idea. And our role as the project team was really to, to kind of codify that idea, if you like, turn it into an actual process, which is what uh, what we did. I think uh, Transport for London and Underground London Underground were feeling quite confident at the time around the Olympics. We've been very successful in managing the Olympics and there was a real desire to do to do innovative things. And also we had a base case design at concept design signed off and approved by the business. So we always had a full back uh, position. And I think, you know, Andy and I were very confident in our capabilities of delivering it. And we, uh, Andy and I took on kind of a dual role where Andy very much engaged, um, you know, with, with the supply chain and what was going on and the, the tenderers. And I worked very much up into the assurance process, uh, TFL's in, uh, independent assurance team and with the LU board. So every step of the way, we got their agreement to the next step. Um, so we never moved forward without agreement of the business going through, always knowing that we had that fallback of our base case. And just to add to that, I think at the time we were also in the shadow of the Virgin Trains franchise had just collapsed through a you know a very difficult procurement that got challenged and it ended up collapsing. And one of the things Simon and I and our head of commercial were really worried about was a challenge on this because it was a new process not being used before. So we, we, we wrote everything down. We had a really clear plan of how we were going to tender it, how we were going to control it, how we were going to evaluate it, because we were always thinking about if we got challenged on this, could we demonstrate that we'd followed the process in the right way, we'd protected all the bidders' interests and we treated them all fairly and equally, which was really important. So, you know, Simon and I took a great deal of time making sure that the team understood that. You know, we were really worried about a challenge. Um, and like I said, there was, I think there was another big um, franchise that had collapsed in public sector as well. So we were, we were under that sort of shadow. So we had to absolutely get it right. And, you know, there was no process for this. It had not been done before in TFL. So Simon and I very much kind of stepped our way through it in a way you know, as Simon says, making sure we had the support of the business and the right governance in place, but equally making sure our team was following 
the evaluation absolutely to the letter. Everything was written down, recorded, but also in a secure environment. So there was no chance of anything leaking out. And I think one of the feedback we got from all the bidders that we did that really, really well. You know, Steve's point around protecting their USP and their commercial elements. We had to give confidence in the supply chain that you could trust us with your ideas and we will keep them guarded and we will not share them and I think we did a fantastic job of that and I think one of the the feedback we got from all the bidders at the end of the process was do you know what we felt completely safe in that environment and we trusted you to but and you you and you delivered on your word you said what you were going to do and you honoured that and that was really important for us. So it creates a great atmosphere for innovation. But the procurement wasn't the only change from the norm, was it? You also decided to change the structure of the organisation early on. Can you explain what drove that decision and what benefits that brought? Yeah, I mean, just uh, start. Yeah, go on, Steve. No, 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 you go first. Well, I will just I'll I'll just do a quick precursor to that, which was the procurement allowed the client and the four bidders to get to know each other. You know, that that negotiated dialogue. So we started to build relationships during the procurement phase where a traditional procurement, you know, you both sit either side of the fence and don't really talk to each other apart from formally. This this built into this procurement was a dialogue between the client and the contractors. Um, Yes, a very regulated one, a very controlled one, but at least a dialogue. So by the time we came to sign the contracts um, with the winning bidders, we knew them. You know, we knew them quite well. So we were able to establish very early on some quite sound collaborative relationships from then, you know, putting in, you know, putting in place the structures that, that, that we had as a client and the contractor had in their bid gave us the foundation to say, oh, is that really working? Is that not really working? Can we make a change? So our confidence in, in thinking about making a change was already kind of inbuilt into that uh, into that process in the early days after signing the contract because of the procurement. Uh, and I think to build on that, <clears throat> you know, the, yes, the contract is always a, an, an important part of what we do and everybody likes to think that it's it sits in a drawer and, and, and is never referred to, but I think it gives a really solid framework uh, and, and guidance to the, the successful delivery, shall we say, um, around a project, but sat behind that was uh, an informal management protocol, um, which probably went through probably four iterations during the life cycle of the project. And again, it it was just a, a, a rhythm that we developed and some commitments that we all made as as leaders as to how we were going to manage the project, the behaviours that we all expected of each other. Uh, and and that allowed us to be able to put some governance around it with the bank board, project exec. Then we could empower the teams on the project to be able to make the right decisions and they could feel involved and part of it. And I think that is a huge part of the success where people have got the freedom to be able to use their engineering expertise to be able to drive and deliver this job successfully. And, and this was a complex job working around the live infrastructure that we had to within sort of millimetres of a live central line or northern line and not to disrupt it. Uh, it, it was, I think the management protocol was a key part of that. And, and there was an instance where, you know, we, 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 had to, we had to implement a change of staff and that's the point that I got involved more on a day-to-day basis because I was on the board before. And it just proves how 
if you've got the wrong people in the mix, that the uh, attitudes can change and the leadership can be lost, and um, it it can it, it takes it doesn't take very long to lose it, but it takes a, a while to regain that. But but we did. We had a wobbly moment, shall we say? Yeah, just on the management protocol. I mean, Simon and I first. I think we called it an alliance protocol, didn't we, Simon, to begin with? Because that's how we kind of thought we were going. But if you look at that, where it started at kind of pre-tender stage versus where it was, where it is now, as Steve says, I think we went through five iterations and the version five to version one looks very, very different. And it went through a whole evolution to get to that point. And I think that's, we weren't afraid to change it. We weren't afraid to say, look, you know what, we need to move this on now. The challenges are slightly different. We need to change it. And we did that with the, um, in conjunction with the bank board. And, you know, for me, that was a real testament of how we were, we were happy to change stuff. If that's what we felt the project needed at that moment in time, and we needed to go back and update the management protocol uh, or the charter, whatever you want to call it. Um, but it was, and we actually slimmed it right down. It started off as quite a big, document and I think eventually we'll got it down to about seven pages because that's how that's how in tune we were as a, as a project with each other um, and we weren't afraid to, to, to change it up we weren't afraid to, to to revise it update it as we felt we needed to. I think it's quite unusual isn't it to go from a big document to a smaller one but it just shows the benefit of the relationship you built over the, the procurement stage and that really benefited the delivery. But we, yeah. we haven't even touched on the engineering challenges of the work yet, and there are plenty of those. And if I've got this correct, the tunnelling work involved excavating under 71 listed buildings and even cutting through some of the paths of some of the more modern buildings on the route. Can you talk us through some of the most technical challenges you dealt with and how the project setup allowed you to deliver deal with those more efficiently? So, so I touched on some of the... Uh, key aspects of success and logistics was was one of them so we had uh, an access shaft shaft in arthur street um, which was probably only six meters by eight meters so it was quite a small opening um, but but ultimately that was part part a, a big part of that successful model i think you know quality control and the processes that we put in place because of the settlement risk to those uh, I think it's a few more than 71 that have been 74 or something but but some of them were hugely sensitive uh, in, in, in terms of their importance I think 34 of them were listed uh, and we went under the Mayor of London's at, at, at one point so obviously from a stakeholder point of view that can be quite influential if you get it wrong so uh, and I think Simon touched on it uh, in, in the first couple of minutes the fact that we worked together to get the Temporary Works uh, Act order in place, it allowed us to be able to build in the engineering solutions and controls and convince the stakeholders that we knew what we were doing. And it gave us the, then the flexibility to be able to come up with different solutions to meet those stakeholder needs, to give them the comfort. And by the time we got to the end of that Temporary Works Act order, there were no objections and I think that's a unique position that this project or any other infrastructure project has ever been in. So that, that's, that's another benefit of this procurement route. It allows us to run alongside each other. But from a, from a, a technical perspective, yes, the, the, there was one particular building that had some underine piles which were 
actually right in the centre of the alignment of the tunnel, but we were able to manoeuvre the alignment uh, to a degree to minimise that impact to that building. And by doing that, we could convince the stakeholders, uh, consulting engineers, that we had a solution that would protect their, their asset and also give them the ability to be able to improve on it in future. And then we just built a transition structure uh, around the new tunnel so that the load wasn't um, placed on the new tunnel. I think, you know, another difficult engineering solution we had to find was for the uh, diversion of the HV cables in order to allow us to be able to drive uh, a new set of triple escalators up to the central line. Uh, and that was uh, a, a very unique piece of work, working alongside the two central line running tunnels to be able to form uh, the shaft for the new, uh, for the cables to be diverted through. But that, they were just two of many engineering challenges. I think we could talk for hours about those. Andy, do you have something to add on the technical challenges? Yeah, I think you've got what you've got. We always talked about bank as being one of those three by three puzzles with the one square missing. And to do something, you had to move a load of other things to get to that. And and the the, the HV is a really good example because we had to mine uphill through a shaft and in that shaft was a substation that powered most of the station so even before we got there we had to move all of that out of the way into another part of the station and all of the routes that went with it and that was a that was a that was a project in its own right and that was just to enable some of that work to happen but just going back to Steve's point around the um, where we mined through the underreen piles we did all that work uh, and all of the residents stayed in that building and they didn't even know we were there. So that was meticulous engineering and construction, lots of pre-planning, lots of really well thought out design and sequencing. Uh, and we didn't move anyone out of that building. And that was a big risk for us on the project because we thought at one point we might have to decamp people out of that building, did the work and then brought them back in. We were managed to do that. And that's working you know, with Dragados had time to think about that and come up with the right solution with, you know, of a really innovative use of how we mine through those piles. And as Steve says, just tweaking that alignment to reduce the number of piles was saved the project quite a lot of money as well. Um, so, you know, one of a really good example of working together with our supply chain, because we had a really um, innovative design from one of the small designers that came up, um, Dr. Sowers and partners came up with a solution to go through there without any detrimental effects of the building and giving them further capacity at a later date if they wanted to redevelop the building as well, which was really important. I, I mean, also the fact that we had the relationship we did and we were sharing a data that you don't normally share in a traditional contract. So we understood the risk uh, profile that, L, uh, that uh, TFL had. And by understanding where they had the risk money, it allowed us to be able to focus our efforts in those areas that give greater benefit to the project, which then gives a lot more cost certainty. Otherwise, we're just quite selfish in a traditional contract and we'll just look after ourselves. That wasn't the relationship we had here. Simon, did you have something to add on that? Well, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, we end up back at the procurement here. When we did the procurement, we shared all the information with the bidders, all the information, not just our concept design in the tender document, but everything that we had developed along the way. And by moving the Transport and Works Act application to the other side of contract award, as we were developing the new 
concept design and doing the detailed design, we were doing the Transport and Works Act process in parallel. We were very clear, and, and because we'd, we'd shared in that procurement, uh, you know, the development of the terms and conditions and the risk share, you know, we as the client carried all that Transport and Works Act uh, stakeholder risk, and the client carried all the all the engineering and, and production and delivery risk. And during those first three years after contract award, before we'd started the main construction, everybody was engaged in that process in the Transport and Works Act, including the stakeholders. So we were able with with you know tier two and tier three of the supply chain, with the main contractor, with the client, with the client's internal engineering stakeholders with the external stakeholders and their engineering teams, we were all able to work together and redesign uh, bits of the project to make it deliverable and to be understand the commercial and the contractual implications of all of that. So that by the time we started construction, we were very, very stable in understanding what we needed to do, who was carrying the costs, who was carrying the risks of those activities which allowed us a, a very, very solid foundation to go on and deliver and to, you know, deliver uh, to time and cost, not notwithstanding, you know, kind of COVID and one, other, one, other, one or two other issues. I've just got one other quick point, if I can, Claire, because I, I, the beauty of the model that we also had, and Andy's mentioned Dr. Sowers, is that during that uh, design phase, while we were going through the Temporary Works Act order as well, we, we were able to develop some new engineering solutions to deliver its spray concrete lining. So we had a combined primary and secondary lining, which is environmentally friendly and it's also uh, more safe. It, 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 it gives better safety and it also reduces the risk of settlement to buildings around. We did a, a, a design of a slightly different construction joint which the industry has now adopted as accepting that it's a much safer way uh, of delivering uh, spray concrete lining tunnels. So there were many other benefits which were which benefit the industry and not just the project. So I just want to touch on the point that you made, Andy, that those people were able to stay in that building while you were doing the work to, to part, go through the piles. And I think that's one of the things, as an observer, the success of the project is the fact that most people didn't really know what was going on. You didn't disrupt them. Until last year, also, you had your 17-week closure of the Northern Line. Can you talk me through what was going on on site then? Because I think a lot of people listening who perhaps are not familiar with the project, that's the first thing that they were aware of. What were you doing during those 17 weeks? So, so during that 17-week period, um, we, the, 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 there was uh, the works that we had to do to connect the new running tunnel that we've already constructed uh, to the existing southbound. So um, obviously north and southbound trains uh, were suspended during the course of the 17 weeks. We then had to put some foam concrete uh, plugs, which were quite a substantial volume of concrete. It took a week for us to put those plugs in place, which then gave us uh, some rigidity to be able to tunnel through into the existing tunnel alignment. At the same time, we had to remove the old southbound tracks uh, infill the uh, track bed itself uh, and then cast the new concourse. Uh, we then had to um, lay, relay uh, the tracks and the uh, electric running rail, uh, bring the platform into commission because obviously we were using the platform for our tunnelling plant during the course of the construction work so it was quite unusual to have uh, 
a semi-finished platform which has got four dumper trucks on it, three remixes, a number of uh, uh, of other large plants as well. So it was an odd site. And then we had to uh, tile the whole areas, clad it, uh, connect it into the existing system, do, do all your uh, train testing, staff familiarisation, and then systems integration. So it, there was a lot to do in 17 weeks and it did get a bit stressy at times. But you finished on time with that. We actually finished nearly a day early. And the station, the station was opened, I think, about four o'clock on Sunday afternoon instead of six o'clock on Monday morning. Perfect. So, and 17 weeks was what was bid in the tender. Yep, it was. So that, that is unusual, isn't it? We, we, we as a client only managed to get it down to 22 weeks. And Regardos bid 17 weeks and they delivered the 17 weeks, however, five, six years later. So that, that, that was a great achievement. So the new station opened at the end of February this year, and now the work's done. What is it that you're each most proud of when you go down and look at it? Andy, go on, we'll come to you first. Yeah, so what I'm most proud of is we delivered exactly what we said we were going to deliver. So when we finished the design for the project, we had these um, architects rendered images of what the new platform would look like and the ticket hall and the cross passages and when you go, to, if you look at those now and then go to the station, they are identical and never on a project have we set out and gone, this is what we're going to build. And by the way, this is what we've actually built. There's always some change and it never quite works out the way you think it is. On bank, it worked out exactly the way we planned it to. Uh, and that's because a couple of key things for me, we, we stuck with our requirements we didn't change anything. So one of the things that Simon set out on the project to say, once we've got our requirements, we're not changing. So, you know, clients tend to dabble with things and think they know better. We didn't change anything. So we said, regardless, that's the scheme, go off and build it. Um, so for me, the bit I'm proud of is one, that project finished within a budget that we set in 2012, notwithstanding COVID, notwithstanding other delays that were outside of the project's control. Um, a fantastic working team. You know, I spent eight years of my career on that project and it was one of the best projects I've, I've ever worked on because of the atmosphere and what we did. Exactly your point, Claire. Nobody knew we were there. We were kind of working away. We did 1.2 kilometres of tunnelling in the middle of the city of London. People didn't know we were there. And that's, you know, really testament to the great stakeholder management that we did as a project. Um, right in the middle of the city of London through all of those listed buildings, underneath all of those buildings from a tiny postage stamp of a work site. Um, and that Dragados brought that because we couldn't make the Arthur Street site work, could we, Simon? When we looked at it, we couldn't logistically, we couldn't make it work when we looked at it. Dragados says, no, 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 we, we can make this work. And in fairness, they did. And that was what unlocked a lot of the, the real construction program and the delivery of the project as Steve spoke about. So yeah, for me, when I look back, we, we did exactly what we said we were going to do, what we promised our stakeholders, what we said in the transport and work sector we were going to do, and we delivered exactly that. And I was talking to, Simon and I were talking to the project architect, and he said the same thing. He said, this is the one job where I've done the images, and you've actually done what we put in the images. So that, for me, is a, a real testament to, to how great that project is. Simon, what about you? What, what are you most proud of? Uh, I think what I'm most proud of is that uh, we gave people a voice. 
couple of weeks ago, we had a closing party and I was chatting to a uh, senior document controller from uh, Dragados. And he said, it's the first time I worked on a project and people gave me a voice. And I think that's what we, what we did. That's what our procurement model did. It, it created an environment where we could have a dialogue together. And this, this, my, my research is very much kind of based on this around collaboration, procurement, routines... Uh, we, we, we set in process a pattern of action that uh, during that procurement process that gave everybody a voice, allowed us to have a dialogue. And uh, if you look at the way the um, engineering team in London and Underground engaged with the external stakeholders, engaged with the engineers in Dragados' supply chain, we all had a voice. The organisational structure we had gave people a voice. I sat next to the project director from Dragados. Andy sat next to the senior management, uh, senior project manager from Dragados. And we, we, we created this collaborative environment that gave people a voice and we weren't afraid to change. Yes, we set a model for how we wanted the project to work, but models don't determine outcomes. Yeah? And as soon as you start to enact the model, you find that something's not working. So you have to be prepared to adapt and change. And that's, that's what we did throughout, as we talked about the protocol. We adapted and we changed and we moved, but we didn't change the fundamental boundaries of you know, what were the requirements, what the, the kind of times and the costs. But within inside of that, we discussed together, we had a dialogue together, we negotiated together, and where there was change, we made those change and we made the equitable share of risk in all of that as we'd set out. But uh, I think giving a voice is the big... big uh, is the big lesson I've learned learnt from it. And Stephen, what, what were you, you most proud of when you look back at the project? There's a lot of what Andy said mirrors my thoughts, but I, I think as an industry, we get a lot of criticism um, for being late, not delivering on time. And maybe some of those jobs aren't necessarily as complex as this, but I think this has proved that with the right model, with the right people, with the right supply chain, we can actually deliver a very complex infrastructure, you know, generally on time and within budget, accepting we went through COVID and some exceptional times, that, you know, in a live environment, that we didn't cause uh, interruption or impact to the running of the railway or the operation of the station. And we've walked out of this with some really high-performing teams and that's, uh, that's not just Dragados, that's Dragados, that's TFL, that's the supply chain. And, you know, they're motivated, they're, 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 and, and they're friends now. And there's not many jobs that you leave at the end of it and have a really positive statement that says, it's quite sad to leave it, it feels like we're breaking up a family. And, and, that, and that's where we are. Uh, it's, it, it's fantastic to hear so many people saying it's one of the best jobs I've ever worked on. So, so all those people are taking forward their experience to the next project. But um, just to finish off, I was wondering what other projects that are setting up now, what could they learn from the approach you took at Bank Station? Do you think other projects should take the, sorry, I can't talk now, the procurement approach you took there? I don't think that... Um, procurement models just map over to other projects automatically. Um, one thing I reflect on is there's a lot of uh, talk in the industry about, um, 
oh, supply chain, you know, we need innovation, innovation in the supply chain. Actually, what, what kicked all this off was the client innovating. And, you know, the industry is not just the contractors. Uh, the industry is also the clients. And especially, you know, government's a big client. We need to innovate. You know, clients need to innovate as well. And they need to be brave. And TFL and LU were brave. And Andy and I were lucky um, that we worked for a client that was willing to do that, albeit, you know, as we've discussed, we put all those processes in place. Um, so I think, I, th- I think, you know, both sides of, 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 the, of the market, the demand side with the client and the supply side, they, they both need to innovate and, and do that. And we need to write, write a model that allows that to happen. OK, but it, it, it's, the, the model doesn't deliver it. You have to then follow that on and continue that engagement and collaboration and willingness to change and adapt. And that, that, and that means good administration of the contract, right? It doesn't mean, um, you know, put the contract in the, in the drawer, you know, and all our discussions were around, the contract was engaged in all of our discussions, but there's ways of making the contract work. You don't just write an order and send it over the fence. You write a draft order and you go to your counterpart and you discuss the words that you're putting in there. You have a dialogue with them. You say, is this the right thing to say? And then you firm that up and you, then you send it over. And, and, when, and then when it gets picked up and enacted, it's going to be more productive. Andy, you're nodding away there. What else do you think the industry can learn from what Bank did? So, so I think for me you've got to let those with the expertise come up with a solution. So, you know, Simon and I were very aware as a client, we had a design on the table that was suboptimal. We had solutions that we thought could work but couldn't make them work. And we realised, actually, we're not the experts in this. We need to let the supply chain that are the experts look at this and come up with the solutions, which is why we ended up with such a fantastic scheme because... You know, Dragados looked at this. This wasn't a civil engineering project to build some tunnels. It was a project to how do we move people through the station. And once you get your head around that and go, actually, this is a people moving project. It's not a civil engineering project. You kind of flick into that mindset and that is what you're focusing on. And that's where Dragados were, um, you know, won the project because the other bidders kind of looked at it as a big civil engineering tunnelling project in the middle of London. Dragados looked at it completely different, said this is just about moving people. So be be clear on what you want for me. And I think what the industry can learn is, you know, let the experts decide the best way to do it. We don't always know as clients the best way. We think we do, but we don't. And actually, and Steve talked about some of the work Dr. Sowers did for us they're the experts in this field and actually they come up some really good solutions such as the the cross passages that were mined between the two existing platform tunnels that were top down that was never in the original bid that was an innovation that came up through Dr Sowers looking at that and they're the experts so they come up with some great solutions so for me what what the industry needs to take away is push those solutions down to where it's best placed to to, to do the solution so the experts that know what they're doing, have got the right experience, let them come up with the solution. And then, and that is where you kind of really get the, the, the benefit and the value. And finally, Stephen. Uh, Simon's alluded to it. I think the procurement model and the client are key because they're, you know, if you look at Newton's law, you get an equal and opposite reaction, don't you? But if you've got a client that's supportive and understanding then it allows us to be able to go to our supply chain with exactly the same philosophy, behaviours, and then we do manage to tease out solutions that are unique 
that give better value. If we just go down the traditional route, we'll always get a traditional answer. You won't, you won't get the innovation. You won't get the USPs. Um, and and they, they will just keep those back for the benefit of themselves. And the project doesn't benefit from that. Individual companies might. But uh, then, then it's very siloed in terms of the benefits you're getting. We've brought everything together here, and uh, the the true value of everything is, is is I think it's a model that many should adopt. Certainly, elements of it, accepting Simon's uh, opening statement. So, I mean, you're very focused on outcomes, and the outcome is very good there. So, I think we could talk for hours about the work at Bank Station, and there's so many elements to it. But sadly, I think that's all we've got time for today. But for our listeners, next time you're in London, do go take a look at Bank Station and marvel at the engineering work achieved there. And join us again soon for another episode of the Engineers Collective. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems. At Bentley, our mission is to provide innovative software and services for the enterprises and professionals who design, build and operate the world's infrastructure, advancing both the global economy and the environment. To find out more, visit www.bentley.com forward slash The Engineers Collective.